are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 4. And you may say, no, uh, are we back in the book of James? No, we're not. But I am going to show you something that I believe God was showing me in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, and then um, in chapter 5. I, I've titled the message today, and I've had a title similar to this, Marginalizing of America in the End Time. I think that when you look at end time prophecy, and we're looking here lately at some of the signs that the follower of Jesus Christ cannot ignore. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the United States, the, this country, and where, why we appear to be in Scripture marginalized or even not even at some of the major events, or we don't seem to see that. But I have to tell you that, you know, when Led said it in Sunday school, when you're talking about the end time. You're talking about the rapture of the church. You're talking about the possible living in the last days. When you do that, people a lot of times kind of treat you like you're a little bit off. And they look at you like you're a little bit crazy. And uh, today in Sunday school, we looked at Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter said that there'll be scoffers. There'll be those that will be mocking and laughing and making fun of you and I because we, we are even contemplating the thought of possibly being in the last days. And so the Bible says that. And, and to be honest with you, yesterday as I was sitting in my office and kind of just, you know, I take notes through the week and I'm trying to put it all together, but I was sitting there, Sheila was gone as by myself and I was thinking, you know, Lord, your people are probably getting tired of me dealing with this subject, that's number one. I said, secondly, people probably think I'm a little bit crazy. That's number two. And I, I said, God, I just want to get back to the book of James. And so God said, well, let's look at James. And you feel this strong presence of the Lord, and I did. And in James chapter 4, where we left off, God said, just read, son. And so I started reading. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, and grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And it was like the Lord was saying, you better do that. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother judges him, speaks against the law, judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting on judgment. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you who are you to judge your neighbor? God said, you better do that. But then down in chapter 5, verse, uh, I, I, I was reading on, and I came to chapter 5, verse 7. And it was like, and I've, I was just reading through. And just to speed up, I was reading through. When I got down to chapter 5, verse 7, I could feel the presence of the Lord in my office consoling and comforting me. 
And in verse 7, he said, Be patient then, brothers, unto the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because, do you see it? The Lord's coming is near. And boy, when I read that, I just felt a chill come over me. The Lord's coming is near. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you the glory. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I want to read a little bit. Um, last week we talked about the timeline of the last days. We've looked about Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah. We looked at the situation there in uh, Israel, asking ourselves the question, are we seeing perhaps Ezekiel 38 or 38 and 39, the battle of Armageddon, the coming together of nations? And Ledge preached uh, about three weeks ago. I was summing it up a couple of weeks ago, and then we looked at it again last week. And we basically talked about the timeline, where we are. Now let me tell you, because I'm uh, what many would call pre-trib, I believe that the church will be raptured, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18. I believe after the rapture of the church will come the tribulation, the judgments of God through the book of Revelation. I believe then will be the battle of Armageddon. I believe after the battle of Armageddon will be the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then afterwards, Satan will be released for a short time, and the Bible says that God will destroy him or destroy him with the breath of his mouth, or put him in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then you and I will be with the Lord forever and eternity. Evil will be done away with. But let me read this. The timeline of the last days, are we there? Don't know that we are. But I do know this, and I've told you this, that the longest answer that Jesus gives is when he's asked about the end time, his second coming, and the end of the age. So that's the longest answer that Jesus gives to any subject in the Bible. So it must have been important. Now, everybody, hold up your Bible. Now, if you've got a phone, I want you to reach and take a Bible. There's Bibles in front of you. Pick up a Bible. Find you a Bible. I want you to hold that Bible up. I want you to, I want you to listen closely. There are 40 different authors who make up your Bible. They wrote over a period of 1,600 years. And they are cohesive. They're together. They don't contradict. They come from all cultures, all different environments. And 40 authors, hold them up high, 1,600 years were writing inspired and moved by God's Holy Spirit to write your Bible. And all God's people said, what? Amen. Amen. That means so be it. In other words, your Bible is a, is a miracle. Now, let me say this. This is God's instruction manual for life. If you want to know how to live life as a follower of Christ, you get into the instruction manual and it'll tell you how to live out the life of faith. Now, let me tell you what you're going to do. Some of you with small children, let me tell you what you're going to do. 
Christmas Eve late at night. You're going to be tired. You're going to pick up some, something that the kids, Santa Claus left for the kids, just in case somebody's listening. And, and he didn't leave it uh, put together. The elves were under a, a strict deadline, and so you got the box, and there's an instruction pamphlet, and let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to put the instruction pamphlet off to the side, and you're going to wing it. And let me tell you why I say wing it. Because you're going to put a wing nut, you're going to put a, a lock nut, you're going to put something on an axle of some riding toy that you got the, that was brought to the kids, and then you're going to realize, I've got to knock that cap nut back off, take all that stuff off, and this time I've got to read the instructions. That's your Bible. Your Bible is God's instruction manual, and if you and I don't heed it, listen, we're, we're going to mess up in life. And all God's people said what? So it gives us insight into the life of faith. It gives us insight into world events. It gives us insight into the return of Christ in the end of the age. That's what your Bible does. Now, first of all, let me just say the title of this message, The Marginalizing of America in the End Time. Number one. Now, going back, you remember in Ezekiel chapter 38, Debbie Lott and David's getting better. In fact, David had surgery. They're getting better. And he's, the, Debbie even said, hey, we were getting up, trying to get ready to get there, but David just said he couldn't do it. You big baby. I know you're watching live stream. <laughs> no, no, David had his spleen removed. He had a few other things removed and then sewn back together. He's got a scar probably wraps around half his body. So David, we're going to give you we're going to give you a little leniency, but hopefully they'll be back next week. But you remember De Debbie Lot asked this question in in Ezekiel, she said at the Battle of Armageddon, where is the United States? Where is America? In Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 13, Ezekiel said at the at the Valley of Megiddo, at Armageddon, he said, Sheba and Dadan and the merchants of Tarshish. And remember, Tarshish is a reference to England. In all her villages, and we believe that could be a reference to all her colonization, all her settlements all around the world. Now, originally, when, Israel, when, when, when England went around the world, colonization was for the establishment of the gospel much like William Carey, much like David Livingston. But it says here, and all her villages will say, now will say to the armies that are gathered at the Valley of Megiddo, have you come to plunder? Question mark. Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to seize much plunder? In other words, Tarshish, England, the villages or the settlements, perhaps the United States, will look at the Valley of Megiddo, will look at Armageddon, and unlike the rest of the world that's converging, will first say, why are you converging? What are you going to do here? So America, if I read this correctly, will be on the peripheral. In other words, America, and I believe by choice, is a peripheral nation. Meaning that we're becoming more detached 
and uncommitted to the rest of the world, and, and, and even Israel, we tend to be somewhat standoffish with the nation of Israel, though we are Judeo-Christian and understand Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless those that bless Israel, I'll curse those that curse Israel. But we tend to see 388% increase in anti-Jew spirit in America today. There's been an increase of nearly 400%. There's been an increase of over 1,300% in England. So England, Tarshish, her villages, America, and other countries such as ourselves, Western civilization will become more detached, more marginalized. Number two, people may say, well, why is America marginalized or why are we not at the Battle of Armageddon? Secondly, Remember this, that time schedule, the next event in, a pop, in an apocalyptic material is the rapture of the church, is what Paul talks about. Now, we say we're a Christian nation. I believe we are. And if the rapture of the church were to take place right now, I believe that it would affect America more than any other nation. In other words, my prayer would be that this room would be completely emptied. And if this room is completely empty, then every position that you and I hold in corporations, in schools, in faculty, in institutions, all of us are gone. And immediately that will bring instability to the United States. If you span that around our entire country, it will cripple the internal structure of our United States government. It will cripple, cripple our commerce, our economics, and even our military. We'll be insignificant, marginalized, not just because of Ezekiel 38, and perhaps we're not wanting to commit to Israel. We'll also be marginalized because the rapture may affect us more than any other nation in the world. Or I pray that it does. Thirdly, control is the critical key of a totalitarian government. I want you to listen closely. Democracy is the opposite of a totalitarian government. A totalitarian government is Marxist. It's, it's Lenin. It's, it's, uh, it's dictatorship. A democracy is a government that is governed by the people, citizens. You and I went this past week and we did what? We did what Tuesday? We exercised our right to vote. We voted. You're part of a democracy. But a totalitarian government is not like that. Now, the last government, as we understand the Bible to teach in Revelation, the last government of fallen man will be a totalitarian government. It will be a regime. It will be Marxism, most likely, or something similar to that. And it will be a government that is totalitarian. You have to understand this. Remember our timeline. What's the next event? What is it? The rapture of the church. Thank you, Sarah. The rapture of the church. We're gone. Now, all of a sudden, the world is in a catastrophic, chaotic disorder. Satan's Messiah, his Antichrist, anti is against, Antichrist, against Christ, all of a sudden that figure comes to the international, the international platform and begins to restore order. Governments, commerce, economics, bringing it all together under one central 
government, a totalitarian government. And you say, but how will that individual control? Take, take, a, left, or take a right out of James and go to Revelation chapter 13. I want you to see this. And, and, I've, and, and I've talked about this several times, but I want to say it again because Sheila and I had a conversation. I want to walk you through conversation that Sheila and I had. Because you may say, well, wait a minute. Once the rapture of the church has taken place and once the Antichrist comes to this position of power and control, how is he going to maintain control over this world? How, how will he do that? We saw a taste of it in COVID, didn't we? Did you notice that all of a sudden China, the Russians, did you notice Africa, did you notice that all of a sudden the Arab nations, the Muslim nations, did you notice how cohesive all of a sudden the world became like that with the threat of pestilence? Did you notice how quickly we were to, be, to, to, to buy into whatever the government said? The government said, get a vaccine, you got a vaccine. And if you didn't, you were anti-vax, and so you were ostracized and alienated. The government said, you wear a mask, and if you don't wear a mask, then you're, you're anti, you, you don't care about people, and you're a mean, cruel, self-centered, narcissistic individual. So there was pressure for you and I to conform and to do whatever the government told us to do. It was a dress rehearsal. And so in Revelation chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Well, who's the dragon? The dragon's Satan. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, when you see the sea in Revelation, that means humanity, mankind. He had ten horns, seven heads, and with ten crowns on his horns, and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. That meant he moved quickly. But he had feet like those of a bear. That means he's powerful. And he had a mouth like that of a lion. That means he's powerful with what he says. The dragon gave the beast his power. Satan gives the beast. Well, who's the beast? Is it the Antichrist? He gives him his power, his throne, and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. A fatal wound means a wound that would kill. But the fatal wound was healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the Christ. What did we say? Everybody look this way. After the rapture, Satan is now... Satan is now bringing this world under central control of one single figure. That individual is the Antichrist. The Bible says Satan will give the Antichrist great power, great authority. He'll dupe the entire world. He's a master at it. He's a deceiver of the brethren. He's a father of lies. He's a master at able to, being able to do this, and he'll do it. And listen, he'll be Satan's Messiah because he will mimic the Messiah. He will suffer a fatal wound that would kill a normal man, and yet he will be resurrected, he'll be alive. And the world will be consumed and absolutely captivated by him. He can say and do whatever he wants. Now watch this. The whole world was astonished. They followed the beast. Verse 4, men worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worship the beast and ask who is like the beast, who can make war against him. In other words, we have, uh, we have no choice but to give this individual, this political totalitarian figure, our allegiance. Why? Because he's backed by Satan himself. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. 
He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name, his dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. He'll make a mockery out of Christianity. He'll make a mockery out of religion. He'll make a mockery of the Bible. After the rapture, they'll be burning Bibles. He was given power to make war against the saints. And you say, well, wait a minute. Or I thought we were gone. My friend, there'll still be people being saved during the tribulation. He was given power to make war against the saints, to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But he goes on down here, verse 11, let's pick back up. And I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He appears to be harmless, but he's evil. He exercised all the authority of the first beast. They're, walk, they're hand in hand. This is the Antichrist and what many would call a, the false prophet, the false prophet. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf. He made the earth and its inhabitants worse of the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. In other words, he puts on a show. He's backed by Satan himself. Because of the signs he was given to power, he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. There's deception. He ordered them to set up an image. That's icon. That's picture. In honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the firstborn. What he says here in the Greek is he saw a picture and he said the picture began to speak. And you've heard me say over and over again, we have TV today that literally shows every freckle. We have come so far. He says, John said, 2,000 years ago, moved to a time in the future. John said, I saw an icon in the Greek. I saw a picture in the Shona language, Mufananitso. He said, I saw a picture, a photograph, and it came alive. And it began to speak. How do you think the Antichrist is going to move around the world and control the world, if not by computer screens, TV, and the, the ability to telecast? He ordered them to set up an, uh, an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small, great, rich, poor, free, slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. And we've said this so many times. With identity theft, now you've got to put the identity on the person. It, it, right now, we dabble with cards. We dabble with your identity being on your phone. But ultimately, it has to be on the person. And we're already experimenting. Verse 17, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Satan controls the world, he controls the economy. So totalitarian government that reaches now around the world and brings cohesiveness, it brings a togetherness of the world. Why? Because the world has experienced a catastrophic loss of humanity and it will be just like Hollywood to create enough illusions through alien invasions that somebody will buy that lie. 
and Satan will be able to come. Now you say, well, wait a minute. In Zimbabwe, Africa, I wrote this down. In Zimbabwe, Africa, it was a Marxist totalitarian government. The president was Robert Mugabe, who ruled till he was in his 90s. He was a wicked man. He led the Zimbabwe people from independence from the United Kingdom. But then he went on to pillage the land and became a billionaire in a country that's 90 plus percent unemployment. There was a level of hero worship with Mugabe, but in essence, he was a Marxist thug. That's what he was. He demanded that his picture be hung everywhere, even in churches. And I'll never forget often looking up in that church and seeing the picture of this wicked man that had killed tens of thousands of men, women, and children. I thought to myself, God help us. And it was like God was saying, you haven't seen nothing yet. Watch what the Antichrist will do with this building. Your TV, your computer, your phone, your security systems, everything. You think, well, I don't know that that'll ever be. Go down to the light here now and run it. You got a blue flashing light up there that automatically records your vehicle, your tag number, and you get a big old fat ticket by way of the mail. In many cities across this country, surveillance is of the degree that we have, on the altar of our security, we have given up our rights. Sheila yesterday asked me the question as I was talking about this. She asked me, how could this be? Let me, I, I wrote it down, so I wanted to remember. Let me tell you what I told her just talking. I, she said yesterday, she said, how will this be? Now, Sheila had a busy day. One of the things she had to do was go to the grocery store. I said, imagine, I said, Sheila, imagine after the rapture. Well, she didn't like that. And I said, I know you're not going to be here. But I said, imagine if you were here after the rapture living under this totalitarian antichrist government. I said, you would get a reminder on your phone or through TV or through computer, you would get a reminder, from, a notice from an international government that basically um, would tell you what you were going to do. I said, in other words, they would acknowledge you would probably put in a request saying that you needed groceries. They would get that, they would acknowledge the reception. You know on your phone when somebody receives, it says delivered. It says delivered. Once you do what they ask you to do, there would be a releasing of your goods. Now you may not get in your vehicle, and you may say, well, I can get in my vehicle and do what I want. Hey, lock your keys in a, in a late model vehicle. Chevrolet will unlock it from a satellite. You don't think the people that lock and unlock your vehicles have the ability to kill your car? You don't just move around when you want. That's what I was telling Sheila. I said, they'll release the goods. Have you noticed how much your goods now are being shipped to you and box stores are no longer being used? You think that's not the attempt of Satan to move us to a degree that we are no longer a community anymore? Do you, hey, go to most doctor's offices. Are you carrying on a conversation with anybody? Absolutely not. You're sitting there glued to your phone while everybody else is. Hey, you're not carrying out the Great Commission. You don't have time because you're watching face, Facebook. 
You will, I said, Sheila, you'll acknowledge, and I said, they'll release your vehicle or they will release the goods. And I said, then you'll be allowed to go about and buy and sell, do what you want. That's the world that we're living in. And you may say, well, number four, what about the church? Surely the church will not succumb. Hey, listen, there'll still be churches here. Now, this church will be here. Now, let me tell you what this church is going to look like, just in case you're here. It's going to be packed. It's going to be to overflowing. And let me tell you, there'll be somebody here. There'll be somebody here. There'll be somebody standing behind this pulpit. And you may say, well, what about the church? What is a sign? You know, Jesus said this in Revelation chapter... Well, take a left, go back to it. In Revelation chapter 3, in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1... Verse 1 through 7, you have a letter to the church at Ephesus. Then you have a church, then you have a letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2 of Revelation. Then you have a letter to the church at Pergamon. Then you have a letter to the church at Thyatira, a message from Jesus. Notice that's all in red letter. Then you have a message to Sardis. Then you have a message to Philadelphia. And then this last church, verse 14, chapter 3, you have a message to a church called Laodicea. Now everybody look this way before I read it. Most theologians say that these seven letters are to seven particular specific churches, and they're right. Most of these say there are also seven types of churches. In other words, you, uh, you visit churches, you might say, you know, that church looked like a Laodicean church, or that church looked like a Smyrna church. They're, they're types of churches. Now, everybody listen closely. But theologians also believe that God was giving an overview of the church age. And that God was saying there's seven epics or ages that we'll be moving through. And the last church age before the coming of Jesus Christ will be what the Bible calls the Laodicean age. Now let's read it. See if this sounds like a church you know. In chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, to the, to the angel of the church at Laodicea, and the word Laodicea means the people rule. How many churches are being run by the laity today? I know a church right now fired the last two pastors. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's what you do with lukewarm fluids of any kind. You say I am rich. Now the word cold is necros in the Greek. It means cold corpse. It means dead. Verse 17, you say I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need things, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you may become rich in white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If you feel like God's whipping you up right now, just remember it's because he loves you. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, what most believe that this last church 
that will be governed by people the people ruled and everybody listen look this way is jesus a member of this church where is jesus he's outside of it and what's he doing he's knocking you see this is a church that looks like the end time and we're seeing that today more and more churches, it's money, it's budgets, it's buildings, it's six-figure salaries, multi-staff, multi-locations, and it's everywhere. It's not to say that all of those are wrong. But my friend, a lot of times what happens is a church gets called up in material things, and before long, that's the only reason that it exists. And you say, well, how could the, how, are we living in those days? I think we are. I think that's what you see a lot today. And you say, well, how could a church allow government to have such power? Let me ask you something. Who bailed a lot of churches out during COVID? You realize the amount of money the federal government gave the church to keep them in existence? I thought we walked by faith. Let me tell you, just in case you ask, we took not one cent from the government. How could the Western church and Western developed nations commit such gross misconduct? How, how could the church become like it is? It's because the church no longer has Jesus inside. You ever been to a church like that? You ever been to a church that you, you, you kind of scratched your head and you thought to yourself, I don't I almost felt like that Jesus wasn't even there. And my friend, that's the character of the church age prior to the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ. You know, I could go farther with this. Uh, Southern Baptists, we are unbelievable. We're the largest evangelical denomination in the world, Protestant denomination. And yet we have, over the last 25 years, dropped in baptisms and the teenage sector church annual report says we've dropped 95%. We are no longer reaching the next generation. And I'm going to tell you partly why. Because young people don't respect this materialistic uh, institution that we've set up that we call the church. We, we, we've messed up. Southern Baptists have fallen, and fallen, and I know some of you think I'm crazy here, but let me go ahead and say it. Southern Baptists have fallen into the trap of hyper-double predestination, supralapsarianism, Calvinist. Robert Culver, in his systematic theology, he's a, he's a reformed, he's a Calvinist, he said supralapsarianism. What is that? That's before the fallism. Now listen closely, put your thinking caps on. Before the fallism. It's the belief which arose after the death in 1583 of John Calvin, God's way of manifesting his grace. This is the belief that it's God's way of manifesting his grace and his justice was to select from hypothetically existing men, men and women yet to be created, a certain number to be vessels of mercy and a certain others to be vessels of wrath. In other words, it was figured out before creation ever began. Who would be saved? Who would not? God created a certain number for vessels of mercy. God created a certain number for vessels of wrath. My friend, let me tell you, 
supralapsarianism, if it creeps into our churches and the doctrine of Calvinism. I had a friend of mine who was on the, he was on the executive board for the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. He said, he made this statement, he said Calvinism, the stealth Calvinism in, in our Southern Baptist churches today is doing more damage than, and he named something else and I'm not going to name it because it's so bad. So if we're living in the last days, of course you would take a, the largest evangelical Protestant denomination, move it away from its doctrinal theological system that it's held for so many years, get it called up into stealth Calvinism, let it b believe a Calvinism called supralapsarianism, which is an extreme double hyper-Calvinist where God's already... Uh, already worked it all out. Free will has nothing to do with it. My friend, he's all mapped it out. It's what C.S. Lewis and some called fatalism. It's fatalistic. You don't want to carry out the Great Commission because you say it doesn't matter. You don't want to pray because it doesn't matter if I pray. All of a sudden, you're just washing your hands of everything. And let me say this, that anti-Semitic, anti-Jew was exact. Martin Luther was one of Adolf Hitler's heroes. And we're seeing it today. And you may say, well, how does the church get in this situation? How does it become Laodicean? Very easily. It gets called up in money, gets called up in government, gets called up in politics. I had an individual, I had two individuals this week. One looked at me, former member of this church, he attends the church, African-American church, he said, I am so sick of the politics coming from the pulpit. I had another individual that said that I needed to be at another church, and it was a white church, that was having political rallies. I said, no, I don't. I said, as a man of God and a gospel preacher, God's called me to take this instruction manual, this book we held up a moment ago, put together by 40 authors over 1,600 years with the exact preciseness that's unbelievable, divine-like. God told me to preach this to you, and I'm not preaching up here Republican or Democrat. I'm telling you what the issues are, and I may tell you where the candidates stand and where political parties stand, but mine is about abortion. It's about the LGBTQ. It's about the institution of marriage. It's about those things that are relevant to this book. I'm going to tell you what this book says. Well, the last one, and I, I, I don't have a lot of time, but one I'm going to get to is the dismantling of the American male. You know, I had a conversation with the British Baptist Union. In fact, he was one of the leaders of the British Baptist Union there in England. We were sitting one day in a coffee shop, and I looked at him and I asked him the question. I said, because I was going in trying to reopen a British Baptist church, I said, why is the church so broken in this country? Why are so many churches closing? His answer was this. He said, the British, the English people feel that God let them down in World War II. My answer, I looked at him startled. I said, you won. You won the war. With tears, I'll never forget this old British looked at me. And he did his hands up in that coffee shop 
in that marketplace in that area. He looked at me, he'd put his hands up like this, and he said, where are your... He said, where are the old men? He said, look around. There are no British old men. They died. And he said it with tears in his eyes. And I thought, boy, that's a good question for America. Where are the men? You know, in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, and you can look at it later, listen to what it says here. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 1, it said, In that day seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food, we'll provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our distress, our, our disgrace. Wow. I thought to myself prophetically, was Isaiah prophesying a time when we will have no men? You know, I talked about the marginalizing of America, but what about the marginalizing of the West, which is a Judeo-Christian framework, a worldview, but what about the marginalizing of men? You know, uh, a few years ago, I preached daughters in danger. Do you remember that? Said our daughters are in danger due to, due to the attack by the rabbit left, especially during the tween years, these tween years between uh, child elementary and, and teenager, and these tween years where they're being offered gender confusion and LGBTQ agenda, and, and, and all of these things are hitting them right as they're coming into that time that they're trying to map out marriage and childbirth. You don't think that's not the enemy? Remember last week I told you there there are worldviews. You remember I got a new belt. My sister Marcia, who I'm sure is watching by live stream, she could, she bought me a this is this is a hundred percent bullhide, and that's what I need, and I'm really proud of it. But you remember what I told you when my belt broke last week? I said that's a picture of your biblical worldview, your worldview. You have a worldview. In other words, your Bible is your final authority. And if you read it and study it and hold to it, it's your instruction manual. This is your worldview. It's your biblical worldview. But there are other views, other worldviews today. Uh, this is a Judeo-Christian. This is what Western civilization is built on. This is that worldview that's under attack today in America and across America. What's another worldview? It's the woke left, Marxist, Leninist worldview. It's the Islamic worldview. You know the Muslims have a worldview. Did you know that? The last worldview, or right now, the worldview of our children, a biblical Western Judeo-Christian worldview may be under attack. Remember what A.N. Hirsi Ali said? She's this academic whiz, a former Muslim from Somalia. She said, I'm fighting for Western civilization for my children and your children. We have to fight. We have to stand. The hopelessness for me comes when people make excuses for evil. When 100,000 who enjoy Western civilization while marching for evil and making excuses for evil, it makes me despair because we don't stand up. She's talking about over 100,000 who marched in London while enjoying Western civilization or trying to trample it under their feet. 
And she said they, and she went on to make this statement, making excuses for evil, talking about all these marches going on. It makes me despair because we don't stand up, we don't stand up to it. Now, this is a former Muslim Somali woman. It's not ju just the Jewish babies they are beheading. They will behead your babies if you don't fit into their world or more so their, their worldview, which is an Islamic worldview. Ladies, you will lose your freedom, you will wear the garb of the Muslim, or you will die. I'm reading a book by Paul Fragazzi. His book is called Jihad. It's an extensive work. He writes this. Ladies, listen. Listen, ladies, because there are competing worldviews right now. A Western civilization, Judeo-Christian, the worldview you've enjoyed all these years, this country. There's another worldview. It's a left, Marxist, Lenin, woke worldview. There's another worldview. It's the Islamic worldview. If the Islam is able to gain the power and control of this world, let me read to you what he says in this book called Jihad. It's an extensive work. He said, six-year-old Aisha may have arrived with her toys to become Muhammad's second wife. Although the marriage, he writes, was not consummated until, she was, until three years later. At nine years old, Muhammad took his second wife, Aisha, who he consummated that relationship and you know what I mean, at the, she at the age of nine. That's a worldview. This past week, I went to a little event for my granddaughters on Veterans Day. I sat there fighting back the tears. And I thought, like Babylon during the days of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our children are facing a threat and worse, our sons. And the threat against masculinity, against maleness, against your fathers, your husbands, your sons, men in society, for you that have daughters, your future son-in-laws is weighing in the balance. At present, the United States has the highest percentage of fatherless homes of any nation in the world. We are socially dismantling and emasculating our men, as some have, as some have said. Mark Driscoll, in a, in a sermon, not that I agree with everything he says, but he called it the demonic six. Let me give you four of them concerning men. Number one, he said men are encouraged to be boys or girls, not men. Young men overly mothered now, underly fathered, kept in adolescence or boyhood, dependent on the government and unproductive to society. That's number one. Sound familiar? Right around the streets? Number two, men are not launching. 18 to 22 is now 18 to 30. Pew Research states young adults are taking longer to reach key life milestones, impacting finances later analysis show. 2021, adults 21 were less likely to have a full-time job, financially independent, married, or have children than their predecessors from the 1980s. They're later getting married, having families. They make a wreck of society. It takes a man to raise a man. And I'm, I'm reading on here just trying to speed up. Follow, they follow society rather than the word of God. 
You will be a poor, unimpressive man, not launching, staying at home into your 30s. Men are not working in the labor force. According to New York Post, record numbers who can't and don't work. And now 25 to 54 sit at home playing video games. No wonder Isaiah 4.1 says women will beg for a man. Number three, men are not marrying. I know we're late. Give me a minute longer. Men are not marrying. Instead, they're shacking up. Men with multiple partners, strictly for sex and no responsibility. Sound familiar? Am I off base here? 40% of millennials in Gen X, Gen Z, Generation Z, are not married. 40%. They're rebelling against the institution of marriage. Girls, stay away. I just wrote down here, girls, stay away from these bums. <laughs> he went on to make this statement. He said, the world is built on men getting up and going to work and being innovative. 25% of 40-year-old men have never worked. One-fourth of 40-year-old men have never worked. The movie 40-Year-Old Virgin is not a virgin. He's like a stray dog, one writer said, that moves around among, among multiple women and has children from multiple women and takes no responsibility at all. The outcome is women can't find a man, can't find a man. They're either faced with old men or they're faced with lesbian relationships. One in four adults are saying they will not have children. 18 million have no father. Single mother homes are at a rise. 300% more likely not to have a father than any other nation on the world. He went on to say this. He stopped and said, let's applaud the men who get up and go to work, who are married, who have children, who take the responsibility of those children, who do not sleep around, who provide for their children, let's, let's celebrate them. The tragedy is without a father in the home, you're 200% increase in behavioral issues, 400% increase of growing up in poverty, 500% medical and emotional problems, rather than fixing the problem, we medicate the boy. You notice how many boys today are being medicated? We don't want to fool with them. We don't want them to be boys. Shut up and sit down. Play your video game. Here's my phone. Play with it. God knows don't get outside. I'm moving as quickly as I can. If no father, they carry emotional baggage. Children do. We give them a pill. We confuse them as to their gender. We mutilate their gender. We mutilate their genitals, castrate and emasculate our boys. Number four, last one. Men are not leading. They're not leading. Women in churches lead. Women in colleges are leading. And women in the workforce are leading. We are seeing a complete collapse of our, cultural, our culture as it is. One writer said, fix the men and you'll fix everything else. The Soviets said, we will conquer the United States without a shot. Boy, they're making a good effort. African-American families are crippled due to the lack of fathers in the home. BLM's response to George Floyd, the death of George Floyd, was no reference to male, no reference to father, no reference to boys. It was purely a Marxist, left, pro-LGBTQ organization, pro-Palestinian now. University campuses have become a seedbed of liberal, woke, Marxist ideology. And my friend, let me tell you something, God knows don't stand up and be a man. 
we're living in those days. Is Christ coming back? Are we near the return of the Lord? My friend, I don't know this, but I tell you this, I've spent my life reading the Bible. I would say we're closer than we've ever been before. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now. Lord, I know I've gone long. But Lord, I pray that as we as a body of believers realize that, Lord, we are in a crumbling society. Our culture seems to be crippled all around us. Lord, we're in a world today that is in disarray. It's in disorder. It's much in the way of violence, much in the way of disunity. And Lord, it's, it's, it's frightening in many ways. And yet, if you were here, Jesus, you would smile and say, fear not. Uh, we're your kids. You're coming to get us. And you've told us that. You're delivering us, the Bible says, from the wrath to come. And we know you are. Now you've given us signs. You've said, now, I want you to be ready. I don't want the rapture to catch you by surprise. And why would he want us to be ready? Because he wants us to be busy. If we believe we're living in the last days, the end time, if we believe the second coming of Jesus Christ is near, then we would be much more committed in the Great Commission. We would be telling people about Christ. We would permeate every conversation with, do you know Jesus? Are you saved? But we would also be in the Word. We'd be excited. It'd be a joy. So, Lord, I pray today just like a child that's looking out the window, waiting for dad or mom to come home from work. Just like a child who's sitting in that window and looking and thinking, dad will be home in a little while. Knowing at the time that he comes home, I remember when I was 13 years old, my dad was in Florida working, finishing up a job at NASA. We were in Mississippi. Mom had said, dad's coming home tonight. Dad's coming home tonight. All my siblings, mom, everybody went to bed because we waited and waited. He didn't come. But after midnight, I heard that old green 1962 Ford pickup with that gear shift on the column. I knew the sound of that vehicle. I knew the sound of it. I heard as he was coming up in third gear and all of a sudden he shifted up to second to make that turn at the top of the hill coming toward the driveway. I jumped up. I kicked the screen out of that window and I ran out in the front yard. And I said, Dad's home. Screaming, Dad's home. <laughs> Standing out there in my underwear middle of a country, middle of a country life, dad's home. And there he was pulling up. May we hear the sound as Gabriel's preparing the trumpet. May we hear the sound of heaven's armies as they now prepare and get ready for battle. May we Feel and sense through the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit saying it's getting close. Get ready. And may we realize that Jesus is 
Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, just like he did as Stephen was being martyred. And he's saying, it's about time. I'm going to get my kids. I'm going to bring them home. And Lord, I pray today if there's a man or woman, a boy or girl, who says, I don't know. I'm not sure. I want to be sure. I pray, dear Lord, today that they would settle that in their heart, that they may know. I pray if there's somebody here that's never given their life to you, that, Lord, they would repent of their sin and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me. You paid the penalty for my sin. I ask you to come in to my heart. Forgive me, Lord. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Now, everybody look this way. Sheila and I were driving along here. She said, you know, what are you going to look forward to when you get when the rapture takes place? I said that I go. Did you hear me? That I go. And she looked at me surprised. I said, Sheila, don't think in all of our hearts at times, we don't think sometime, or we think, God, what if I messed up? What if I'm wrong? God, I'm battling in this area. I'm battling with this sin. God, I'm, I'm not where I need to be here. And God, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I, I hope I go. I think I go. I'm almost positive that I go. But that, but that little lingering doubt, we all have that, including your pastor. Why? Because we got an enemy, the accuser of the brethren. He doesn't want you to feel that security. But let me tell you, if you've repented of your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. John said it in John, 1 John. He said, these things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. And hey, listen, I'm not banking on me having a good day, good week, good month, good year. I'm not banking on that water back here. I'm not banking on anything but the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's all I'm banking on. That's it. My whole life, all the good I've done, Thanksgiving, Christmas when I'm here, running around doing all that, it won't add up to a rat's hair worth nothing on the day of God's judgment. It's only this, indwelling Holy Spirit, that one of these days will lift me up toward the heavens to meet Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You come. May never be a moment like this moment, but you come. If you need to come here and just spend a moment in prayer, come to this altar, pray. If you need to grab somebody else, would you go with me? Would you pray with me? You want to go to that cross, you go to that cross. Let's do business with God today. Let's do business with Him, not with me. You, know, you don't have to come to me. You do business with the Lord today. If you want to be saved, come to me. I'll tell you how to be saved. You come.